Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Everywhere we turn, someone is promising to finally give us the satisfaction and happiness we long for. Yet from advertisements to political campaigns, these promises so often remain unfulfilled. We know God makes promises too, but do you ever wonder if He'll actually keep them? Join us for our Christmas series, Fulfilled, as we discover how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to us, and how the promises He kept then fulfill our deepest longings now. Will I ever amount to anything? Have you ever asked that question of yourself? You looked at your life, you looked at uh, how things are going, maybe you've looked at your dreams and aspirations, and you thought, will I ever amount to anything? Will there, will there ever be a mark of, of greatness in my life? Will my life ever have an impact that will go just beyond the few minutes of my life that are there, but will, will go on from generation to generation? Will I, will I leave a legacy? I remember when I was in high school, I would study history a lot. It was my favorite subject, and so reading history books was just something I enjoyed. And I remember reading names like Alexander the Great, or Julius Caesar, or George Washington, or, or others, and I, and I remembered thinking about those individuals and going, you know what? They're remembered. Here I am, and this was in the late 90s, you know, in high school, studying and, and hearing these names and thinking about the fact that some Hundreds of years earlier, maybe thousands of years earlier, these people lived, and there today, sitting in that chair, I was remembering their name. I was acknowledging they were a significant person in history, just because they showed up in a book, and the book said, this person did profound things. And it got me to think, what kind of life do you have to live? What kind of life do you have to have to have a name that is remembered through the annals of history? That, that thousands of years, like, what life do I have to live today that thousands of years from now, people will go, that was a great person. They'll still talk about you. They'll still remember you. Perhaps there is a desire in some way in my heart that my name would show up in the history books. Now, let's be honest, maybe it's probably not going to be in the history books of Western civilization or U.S. history, but maybe church history would have a place for me. Maybe among the Augustans, and the Calvins and Luthers, even the Billy Grahams of church history, maybe my name could be found one day as well. And that's an aspiration that when I was a lot younger, I would say I attained to. I desired to be known. I would desire to make an impact. I would have a desire to be remembered, even to, to be great. It sticks in my head. And yet here I am today, and my staff told me Wednesday this week that I'm a lot older than they thought. Here I am, squarely in the middle of my middle age life, and that history, that church history Hall of Fame aspiration that I have, it doesn't seem to be too much in the realm of possibility for me. That's okay. I wonder if that kind of aspiration, maybe not for church history, but I wonder if that kind of aspiration or that desire sticks in your heart as well. Are there places where you desire? Maybe you wouldn't desire, maybe you wouldn't use the word greatness, maybe you wouldn't describe it that way, but are there places where you desire to be seen, to be remembered, to be acknowledged, even to be appreciated and approved and kind of thought as a big deal, to be great? 
Are there spaces and realms of your life? Maybe it's in your career. Maybe it's within the legacy of your family. Uh, maybe it's within the rec leagues that you're a part of and your social engagement and civic engagement. Are there places where you long to be recognized for your contribution and achievements and successes? Maybe if I could ask the question in a different way, do you feel forgotten? Do you feel overlooked? Do you feel like nobody sees you? Nobody cares. You look at life and you're like, I'm, I'm maybe nobody. The desire to be seen, to be known, to be approved, to be great even, that's one of the desires, that's one of the core desires and core longings of the human heart. Not a single person among us wants to be forgotten or overlooked, both in the immediacy of our lives now, but also in the grand scheme of history as well. There is an innate desire in every single human being for greatness. And I want to tell you, don't overlook that desire. God doesn't. And yet, the fulfillment of that desire might not come from the place or in the way in which we think it will. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up with me to Matthew chapter 2. I need my Bible. <laughs> Came up here without it. Open up to Matthew chapter 2 this morning. We are in this series called Fulfilled. We're studying Matthew's story of the account of Jesus' infancy. Matthew does something unique in his story in that he takes five quotations from Hebrew prophets and he uses them as a framework to talk about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And Matthew shows us in each one of these quotations uh, that they're more than just a statement. They're a past declaration about something the future Messiah will do, something that God's anointed, His Christ, will come and embody and fulfill and meet. So last Sunday, we, we saw Isaiah's prophecy that the Messiah would be born a son of a virgin. And in that prophecy, Jesus fulfills the longing that we all have for the presence of God with us. And Jesus being born, as a, uh, born of a virgin as a son, he comes to be God with us. And this week, we're going to keep going in Matthew's narrative because Matthew takes us to another ancient prophecy, another ancient prophet, Micah. And he shows us something more about the Messiah. Now, Matthew takes Micah's prophecy, and he's speaking about where Micah says, this is where the Messiah will come from, the place. In Jesus' fulfillment of that prophecy, we're tuned to understand how Jesus meets the longings of our heart for greatness. How, in the way Jesus fulfills Micah's prophecy, we can see and be encouraged that God sees us. God approves us. God knows us. The truth is, if all God's promises find their yes or their fulfillment in Christ, then in Jesus, the least can become the greatest. It's such good news for us this morning that if you feel forgotten or overlooked, if you feel like the least, that's exactly the right place to be because in Jesus, the least can become the greatest. That fulfillment for the desi of the desire to be seen, to be noticed, to be approved, God meets that need in Christ. But we have to ask the question, well, how is that true? How, how does that work out in our lives? Well, I think this morning we have to do a couple things, and Matthew's text will help us with this. We have to deconstruct some preconceptions that we may have about where true greatness is found. That we may have to think a little bit differently, and we may have to tear down some, some common uh, worldly views of where greatness is found so that we can get the right view. 
And so to do that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deconstruct two ideas of where greatness is found, and then I'm going to show us where our longing for true greatness can really be met. So let's look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. We've heard this text this morning, but I want to just jump into it with us as well. And I want to deconstruct these two ideas of where greatness is found currently, and then take us to where we can see our longing for greatness is truly met. Let's start with this. Let's deal with the first idea. The first idea that is where we find greatness is that greatness, the way the world tells us, is found in our reputation. And so the, the idea to deconstruct is that greatness isn't based on our reputation. Greatness isn't based on our reputation. We, we hear today, we believe, we, we are taught, we are shown that, that you will be great if people think highly of you. We believe that greatness is a matter of what others say about us. Greatness is bestowed upon us externally from other people, from the world, from communities, from social environments, from the internet, wherever it may be. Greatness comes to us by what we do and what we are. And so we want others to perceive us highly, to celebrate us, to talk about us. We, we don't even have to do good things to get people to talk about us. The adage, no news is good news, is bad. We want some news about us. So we either behave poorly so people will talk about us and speak of us, we're known at least, or we try and behave well. We try and do great things and exploits and, and have a, a fame out there, so to speak, so that others will talk about us. One of the worst things that we can feel is if no one sees us, no one talks about us. We may even question our existence when that happens. Here's how this works, and, and I see it happen so much today in our lives, really in the realm of social media, but you, you see it too. Let me just put it this way. If a picture is posted on Instagram and no one comments on it or likes it, is it really a picture at all? If, if, if no one watches your TikTok video of you doing something weird and kind of silly or, or commenting on whatever it is you want to comment on at the moment, and no one watches it or likes it, are you really even a person? Of course you are. But we tell ourselves, I know the dialogue runs in my head at times, why didn't anybody see that? Why didn't anybody like that? Why didn't anybody say something approving of that? Do I really even matter? And so we build our ideas of our seenness, our knownness, our greatness, if you will, based on the feedback that we get from society, particularly right now through social media, but in everything else we do. Some of us work very hard at our jobs and do a great job at them so that we will be noticed and recognized and approved. We work hard in our communities. We seek to, to be a great person in our families so that we're building a reputation. The issue of reputation is at hand here in Jesus' story as well. Matthew drops us into a, a curious place here at this moment. He's already told us about the birth of Jesus, so we're kind of getting beyond Christmas uh, just a little bit. But he, he tells us more about Jesus' infancy, and he wants to deal with the idea of reputation here, particularly the reputation of the place that Jesus came from. Look with me at verse 1. Matthew writes and he says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now we'll come back to these characters of who Herod is, but he's noted as the king. These wise men from the east, not 
reality there. But I want us to know there's two places here in verse 1 that Matthew talks about. First of all, this community called Bethlehem of Judea. And secondly, Jerusalem. There's something at work here in the contrast of these two communities. These wise men, they see a star in the east and they come to uh, they come to Jerusalem, they come to this city, this capital city, and they come seeking information. Verse 2, they come and they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now these guys are not in the wrong place at the, right, uh, at the wrong moment here. They're in the very right place, in Jerusalem, the city. They've seen a sign in the heavens. They've tried to understand what that means and and uh, pursue it down in their hearts and in their lives. And all the answers have led them to go to Jerusalem. And and what the star had told them through their study and research and understanding was that that star signaled there was one born king of the Jews. A significant person was now on the scene of human history. So they go to the actual place where you would expect a king to be born. The capital city. The palace, right to Herod's gate. I mean, they're knocking on the door saying, hey, we, we think you got a child here that's king of the Jews and we want to celebrate that. We're real excited about it. Except that wasn't the right place. But we can't fault them for being in the wrong place, thinking it was the right place. Everybody else in history, when you read history and you hear about prominent people being born, it's all remarked about them coming from prominent places. Julius Caesar, born in the city of Rome, for instance. There may have been some expectation from these wise men that the king of the Jews was right there in Jerusalem, and they were right to expect it. A city with a great reputation, prominent place. But wait, look with me in verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. He's got anxiety in his heart, and he knows why, and we'll find that out a little bit later. But even the city of Jerusalem itself is perplexed. King of the Jews, born here, like word gets around, like, what is going on? What would this mean? Who would this be? Herod has the answer in head, and yet he wants to bring it out. And so verse 4 says, he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of people, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Herod's already connected the dots. These wise men from the east come, and they say they're looking for the king of the Jews. And Herod, thinking it through, goes, oh, that must mean this anointed one of God, this one who would sit on the throne of David and be the king forever. He must be here. And Herod, like, that's a rival king. That's, that's not from his line. That's somebody else to supplant him. And so Herod's out to find where this true king of Israel is. And he goes and he says, well, let's find out. If anyone would know the ancient prophecies about the coming of the Messiah, it'd be the people that studied the scriptures, the religious leaders, the scribes, the Bible scholars. And so he gets them all together and he, and he says, all right, you tell me, what do the scriptures say about where the Christ would be born? Where is he going to show up? Let's just figure this out once and for all. And they know the answer. They don't even hesitate. They say to him in verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They go back to the Old Testament Scriptures. They find Micah 5, verse 2, and they quote Micah. This is what Micah says. He says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. 
And I just want us to think about the place here for just a moment, the reputation here. You've got Jerusalem, proud, powerful, capital city. And then you've got this little community, Bethlehem. And it's interesting that Matthew even tells us which Bethlehem it is, Bethlehem of Judea. Matthew has to do that because in ancient Israel, there were two Bethlehem communities. There was one in the south, six miles south of Jerusalem, small little village. And then there was another one in the north in the Galilee area with a different name beside it, but both named Bethlehem. So Matthew wants us to know exactly which Bethlehem it is. But that's all we get. This Bethlehem is not a a prominent place at all in the ancient world. It's not even one that would really show up on the map. It's this little, ignorable, unspectacular place. And yet, it's the very place that God has promised and prophesied that His Messiah, His Christ, would come from. This, This city of Bethlehem, this little town that we now celebrate as great and prominent in Jesus's day, if I could compare it to our sort of communities, it was a single, like one stoplight And not even a three-tiered stoplight. It was one of those lights that would just flash red or yellow. It was a one-stoplight town. You just zipped through it. It it probably wasn't even a township incorporated in any way. Just this rural, out-of-the-way, nowhere place, nowhere town. Nobody came from it. And Matthew's, I'm sorry, Micah's statement acknowledged the significance of this town. It isn't significant. Micah says, you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be named among the clans of Judah. You're not even a place, not even existing. No reputation, no status, too insignificant. And yet I find it interesting that today, this community is seen as one of the most prominent places in the world. Israel's tourism department says that millions of visitors go on pilgrimages to Bethlehem to this day, especially during this time of year. It's interesting that Bethlehem means something now. There's 18 different U.S. states that have communities in them named Bethlehem. It's a name. It's it's prominent. It's something. And that's where we have to break down the idea that greatness is based on reputation. How many of us live our lives so that others will notice us, others will talk about us, others will think about us? So whether it's a fake curated life that we live on social media to generate likes and loves, or whether it's the ambitions that we undertake in our careers to move up the ladder, or the ways that we can one-up others in order to gain notoriety and approval, we believe that if we are seen, we are seen, we are, and if we're seen as the best, we'll be loved and approved and accepted, we might even be great. Essentially, this desire for approval externally, building a reputation, is a desire for the applause of mankind. And friends, it will never leave us to true fulfillment. It will never get us to satisfaction and contentedness. There will never be enough being seen, never enough approval, never enough applause or greatness from this world, based on our reputations, to satisfy us. That's why we're always reaching and straining out for more. When we think about it, what people think about us, our reputation, it's an unrelenting, unquenchable thirst and an unending chase to be great 
and to be seen in somebody's eyes. But Jesus here shows us, Matthew, as he writes this, declares to us, greatness isn't based on your reputation. Because if it was, Jesus would have been born in Bethlehem or Rome. He'd have been in the place that was the prominent place, being a prominent person. But he's not there. He's in the little, unassuming, overlooked, forgotten community out of the way. Greatness isn't based on our reputation. And that's one myth that we might believe about where greatness is found. So let me take us now to the second myth, the second place, and, and deconstruct this one. And we say, okay, greatness isn't found in my reputation. Maybe it's somewhere else. Maybe greatness is found about what I say about myself. Maybe greatness is found about my identity, how I choose to live, what I choose to say I am, who I am, who I choose to be. Maybe greatness is found, maybe applause and approval and acceptance, those things come from within out. And here I would show us that greatness isn't based on our identity either. Greatness is not based on our identity. There's been a shift, you can see it culturally in the last, certainly in the last 40, 50 years, but definitely in the last 10 years it's felt all the more. And that shift has moved us from trying to convince others that we're great and what determines our greatness is our reputation. The shift has moved from that to saying, well, what determines our greatness, what we project is our greatness. That's really what matters. Our identities that we choose and identify with, that's what determines our values and our greatness. If, if others will affirm the identity that we've chosen for ourselves, then we're seen and we're known. If others don't affirm the identity that we've chosen for ourselves, well, they've got big issues. They've got big problems. Our culture in America is, as the American scholar Robert Bella defined as expressive individualism. And he states it this way. He says that expressive individualism holds that each person has a unique core of feeling and intuition that should unfold or be expressed if individuality is to be realized. Like you've got to be the truest you that you can be so that you are fully realized. Carl Truman, in his excellent book, Strange New World, he talks about it this way. He says, the increasing social sensitivity against criticizing anyone for their personal lifestyle, reflects a view of the world where each person is free to perform life in whatever way they choose. And any attempt to express disapproval is therefore a blow not simply against particular ways of behaving, but it's a blow against the right of that person to be whoever they wish to be. Certainly we've seen this in society and in culture today. You choose your way. You define yourself however you want to be. We believe that who we are and how we identify ourselves is what matters most. And who we are and how we identify ourselves makes us worthy of approval and remembrance and ultimately greatness. And if someone contradicts that or challenges that, shame on them. Let's go back to Matthew here. Consider the identities of the people in this passage. He's just breaking down that identity is not where we find greatness, acknowledgement. Look with me just in verse 1 and 2. Like, we have a few people here. We've got Herod, the king, so that's the identity he marks with. We have these religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes. They're the, the Bible guys, the scholars. They, they study the Scripture. 
And then we have this third group of people, these, these wise men from the east. We know the, Herod the king, we know what he's doing, we know what the, the Bible scholars and the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, what they're doing, but who are these wise men from the east? What are they doing here in the Bible? Well, the, these wise men from the east, or the term is magi, they were not the right kind of religious folks. I mean, the, of all the people that show up in the infancy story of Jesus, these are the ones that just kind of perplex me the most. Like, what, these guys? Like, they are there? The Magi were the pagan astrologers or sorcerers or wizards from the region around Babylon. They just practiced this religion. Uh, it would be akin to the modern New Age movement, reading horoscopes, reading the scar- stars to determine the future, to understand what is happening in the universe, to, to develop an identity and, and pra- practicing some mystical arts and sorcery. Now, think about this. The Christ is born. The family is there. Who, who would get the invitation to come and visit? Who, who, who do you think would be the right ones to invite in to come and worship the Christ child? Because you're just kind of thinking through who you'd send invitations to. Who would be on your list? Well, you think that, okay, well, the religious leaders, the people that study the Bible. They, I mean, obviously the scribes knew exactly where to go in, talking, in the scripture in talking about where the Messiah would come from. Oh, Micah 5 too. yeah, let's right there, Bethlehem. So you'd probably want to invite those guys, right? They're going to know what the Bible says about the Christ. They're going to want to be eager to to worship him. And then you think, well, okay, the Christ is a king. He's the Messiah. He's the king that sits on the throne of David forever and ever. So you probably want to invite the current king there. Hey, this is, he's going to be your successor, but hey, he's a good dude. He may want to show up and like pay homage to him, worship him. Like he he should be there. Lead your people, lead Israel in the worship of the king. And you think, then oh, we got these pagan guys? Like, no, they're not going to be interested at all. We, they don't even, they're not even on the same wavelength religiously. Like, we just don't need to bring them. And yet, who's the identity that God invites? Well, the religious leaders, they're just not paying attention. They know the Scripture. They don't have the humility to obey the Scriptures. They don't. They don't even pay close enough attention to realize the Messiah is there. So they're not worshiping him. And the king, he sees Christ as a threat to his power and kingdom. He's trying to build greatness off of his reputation and his strength and his ability. Is he going to show up to worship? He plays a little game. Herod brings the, uh, the wise men in and he says, you know, when you go and search diligently for the child, verse 8, when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. But we'll read a little bit more later and next week you'll find out he had no intention of worshiping Christ. He wanted to murder Christ. So he's not in. It's, it's the pagan masters of the mystical arts that show up. They're the ones who see God puts a star in the sky, some cosmic sign that they see, and they go, that means something. That that means something about someone important. We better go figure it out. And they journey and make haste to see him. This is what Matthew says in verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go search for the, diligently for the child. When you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And so after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them 
until they came to rest over the place where the child was. They see it again. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They show up. Now think about this. God sends his invitation the way of the pagan sorcerers to come and worship the true king. And this is a picture of the gospel. God's grace doesn't go to the deserving, to the strong, to the accomplished, even to the religious and the great as the world sees it. The gospel goes to those who are outside, to the weak, to the lame, to the poor in spirit. The gospel goes to the spiritually destitute, to those who who recognize how far off track they are, to childlike people who see signs in the sky and say, that means God's doing something. I better figure it out. Here's why this is important. Greatness isn't based on the titles you possess or the identities that you project and signal to the world. This expressive individualism that the world props up and says, create your own you and that your uniqueness, your identity with a certain community or tribe or political ideology is what determines your significance. In the sight of God, greatness isn't based on your identity. If greatness isn't based on your reputation, how you project yourself and the world that you wish to build or what others are saying about you, or your identity, what you're projecting of yourself to others, then what is greatness truly based on? Or to ask a question about fulfillment here, where do we find the fulfillment for that core desire of being known, being approved, being remembered, even of being great? The reality here is that greatness is based on our relationship. Greatness is based on our relationship. Go back to Matthew's quotation of the prophet Micah. Micah had said, you, Bethlehem, Ephrathem, are least among all the rulers of Judah. But Matthew does it again, the same thing that we saw with him modifying and adapting Isaiah's text. He does it with Micah's text here. He He tweaks the statement just a bit, but it's such a significant shift. In God's eyes, Bethlehem in the land of Judah is by no means least among the rulers of Judah. God conveys greatness on Bethlehem by His grace. He shifts it entirely. No, Bethlehem, you're not the least. You are by no means the least. For from you will come the ruler, for one who will shepherd my people Israel. He appoints this little Nowhereville town to be the significant place where the most significant person ever will come from. God pours out his grace on this town that doesn't deserve it, doesn't doesn't have any map or, or mark on the map of their own, and he makes it a prominent place. It's as Francis Schaeffer, the 20th century theologian and apologist said, as there are no little people in God's sight, so there are no little places. If, if God points His grace at you, then in His eyes you are great. If He directs His grace and love towards you, friend, you are seen. You are approved. You are loved. If if He directs His love at you, you are accepted in Him. If God directs His grace to your way, then then the statement goes from, you are too little, to you are by no means least. 
Or as Jesus says, the least become the greatest in the kingdom of God. So how do you know if God is pointing his love and favor and grace your direction? How do you know if he sees you? Well, think about what God did with these wise men from the east. These magi, these pagan mystic art worshipers. Think about what God does here in this text. First of all, he attracts their attention. These guys don't have the Bible. They're not paying attention to the Bible. So what does God do? He gets their attention. He throws a star up in the sky, some cosmic element, and it gets them to ask questions. What does that mean? Where's it going? What's it about? He's trying to get their attention. The way that God gets our attention today, here in our culture, in our context, in this very moment, is through His Word. That is, if you are sitting here listening in this room at this very moment, if you're watching online, even right now, I am speaking from God's Word, telling you about God. He's waving the hand saying, hey, do I have your attention? I'm talking to you right now. He's, he's, he's drawing you close, saying, listen, pay attention. Do you recognize that? In the preaching of the word this morning, God's trying to get your attention just as much as he was the wise men from the east. And not only does he place a star in the sky that gets their attention, he, he points them in the right direction. They, they perceive in some way or another that, that to go to Jerusalem is the right way. This, this sign declares to them that the, Christ, the child will be born king of the Jews. And so they have to go and investigate that. And they know that they've got to go to Israel, they've got to go to Jerusalem to find that. I don't have the time this morning to unpack all of how they figured that out, but I think it starts with the prophet that God placed in Babylon, in that community, some 700 years earlier by the name of Daniel, who was also known as one of the Magi. And through his writings, was able to speak about the Christ. And they had those texts around, and so they see a star, and they read from one of their fellow uh, magicians, Daniel, that star means this, and they go. They get on the road to Jerusalem. And then as they get there, God even directs them all the more and says, it's Bethlehem. That's where the child is. And he raises the star up again, leads them the way, and thirdly, takes them right to Jesus. And that's what God does with us. He attracts our attention. He points us in the right direction to Christ through his word. And when we see Jesus, there he is. That's how you know God has pointed his love and grace on you. He he declares himself. He points you to his son who came and lived the perfect life you couldn't live, who died the the death that you deserve for your sin and who was raised to life again on the third day so that you will not face death under judgment but will receive eternal life with him forever. Friends, if you've heard me proclaim that, even now, God is pointing his love at you. God sees you right now, and he loves you. And he's demonstrated his love to you in this, that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. You have the greatest being in the universe bringing you into his greatness, gifting you as calling you a family member through Christ saying, you are my son, you are my daughter, giving you a fulfilled identity, giving you a real reputation that can never be overlooked or tarnished. And this speaks to us about how we respond. Look at now how the wise men respond. 
God attracts their attention, he points them in the right direction, brings them to Christ. In verse 11, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshiped him. And that's how we come to Jesus. We see him for who he is. We believe what he said he would do is true. And we trust him. We fall down and we worship him. Anybody here can do that today. Anybody, any of you who are far from God and you feel like God doesn't see me, God doesn't know me, God doesn't care. Wrong. He sees you, he loves you, he cares, and he's telling you, come to Christ. Believe him. Fall down and worship Jesus. Turn over your pursuits of building your own identity. Turn over your pursuits of trying to build your reputation and be found in Jesus. Worship him. And they worshiped him. And then they gave him all their lives. The scripture says then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and mirror. They just, they just gave up of everything of themselves and said, he is the one who's worthy. He's the great one. And in his greatness, our greatness is found. When we see Jesus as king, we fall down as worship him as Lord. We give all of our lives in response to him. So, so go back here and, and ask yourself the question. Do you, do you long for approval? Do you, do you long to be noticed? To be applauded? Or accepted? Does that trajectory lead it all the way to saying, well, I long to be great? Yeah, every one of us do. But unless you're seeing that longing fulfilled in Christ, you're, you're looking in the wrong places. The desire to be known and loved and accepted to be great is fulfilled ultimately and fully and forever in Jesus Christ. So lay down your efforts to secure greatness on your own. Lay down your attempts to project an identity of greatness. And come to the Savior who gifts to you a new name, who gifts to you a better reputation, who gifts to you his glory and greatness. And you will never lack that again. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself to us today.